Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on pretty much all uh, platforms where good podcasts are sold, and of course with video here on YouTube. Hey guys, welcome to the show, and thank you for inviting me into your home again this week so I could chat with you. This week I have guest Dr. Jeff Wassel, good friend and um, forensic accountant, graduate of um, London School of Economics, uh, former military, all around great guy and uh, someone who I really, really enjoy having um, kind of deep, interesting conversations about when it comes to history, military, government, and all things like that, as well as, course, of course, about uh, Scientology forensic accounting. So, Jeff, welcome back to my show. Thanks, Chris. It's funny. I don't think we've talked about Scientology in quite a while, to be honest with you, which yeah. is probably a good thing, actually. Well, a little bit, yeah, yeah a little bit, because um, I think we've put some some real quality content out there in terms of examining what Scientology has been up to and relating it to a, a mafia model, which you introduced me to as an idea Absolutely. or a concept. I, I think it's. I thought it was brilliant, and I thought we. Uh, I thought we had some really good things to say about that stuff. I think, too, today, there's a kind of a Scientology component to our discussion on Operation Paperclip. That's <laughs> right. As, uh, <laughs> do the ends justify the means, right? Exactly. <laughs> so I'll let you roll with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly right. And today we are going to talk about this. And I, I want to preface it with, it's you know, it might be considered unusual or or different for me on my channel to sit here and go into um, an ethical or moral or, or, you know, real politic discussion and um and that's kind of what we're doing today and i i was fascinated by this and i thought you know there's a lot of people in the skeptic atheists uh community who do videos talking about ethics talking about morality talking about uh, you know is there such a thing as, as objective morality or objective ethics or do we you know does it come from god from the bible from here from there where do we figure out what's right and wrong and all of that and right. some of those discussions are kind of interesting, but most of them I find a little, you know, okay. Um, this is something that came across my plate. Um, I think I first heard about it on Rogan because um, he interviewed a woman who wrote uh, a book about Operation Paperclip, which we're going to talk about here. And I thought, holy cow, talk about a very real-world very pragmatic, practical problem with a lot of moving parts that 20 years ago, I would have, 10 years ago, maybe even, shit, maybe three years ago, I would have said, it was absolutely wrong. There's no way that ever should have happened. How could it be that we could ever have had something like this happen in our history? And it was only after, you know, really diving into the details of it that it became clear that this is a moral quagmire of magnitude, of, of, of re this is a real problem. And facing us in looking at the moral implications or, or ethical considerations of something that went down many, many years ago, um, right after post-World War II. And, um, and let's just go ahead and get into it, I guess, because I think the ethical questions will come up as we go and we can sort of chew on them a bit 
And um, but this is what I was interested in as I thought, well, here's a real example of something that is not so clear cut, not so black and white, although it might appear that way if you only look at it at the surface level. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think the important thing is that when we look at ethics and morality in this context is context. In this case, the historical context, uh, Operation Paperclip was occurred right at the end of World War II. And for those viewers that don't know what it was, in a nutshell, it was basically uh, a concerted uh, intelligence operation by the U.S. government to hoover up as many uh, key leading Nazi rocket uh, human factors, uh, chemical warfare. I mean, anybody across the spectrum, any skill set that the Nazis had that were advanced above and beyond what the Allies had. And also in competition with the Russians, the Russians were doing the same thing. So this was right. just a huge land grab for, for intellectual capital, basically. That's uh, right. So we're talking basically 1944. Um, well, I think, yeah, it seemed to, it seemed actually primarily went down after, yeah, after we defeated Germany, because we defeated them in May 1945. And this really was in full swing from 45 to 49. But actually, there was the antecedents for it were before then. Yeah. Well, the thing you have to remember is the Germans were incredibly technologically advanced when it came to warfare in World War II. And this goes back to tactics at the Blitzkrieg uh, and or armor, all kinds of things. Where they failed at the, where they fell at the, at the, at the first hurdle was manufacturing and their inability to make things that were easy to, to like the Sherman tank, for instance. You could make zillions of Sherman tanks. It wasn't as good as a Panzer or, you know, a Tiger. Uh, you know, the, the more advanced German tanks, but hey, you can make a whole boatload of them and that's what won the war, right? Yeah, number, it was but a numbers game, of, yeah. But on top of that, their, their scientific expertise in chemicals and in rocketry and aeronautics was unsurpassed. That's right. And we really started seeing this with the advent of the, the jet engine, the Jumo 008-006 that came out in 43 that powered the ME-262, which was light years ahead. I mean, if if Hitler let that airplane uh, go into production, Speer was just after him to do that. He wanted to create it as a Schnell bomber, though, a fast bomber that could go and basically as a, as a revenge tool rather than a tactical tool that could have just blown the B-17 formations out of the sky. And that's what defeated Germany, essentially, was its inability to defend against aerial bombing of its petroleum, oil, petroleum, and other lubricant resources. It wasn't the cities. It was its the inability to to manufacture petroleum. And that's going to play into our story too. Is yeah. A lot of these guys. So anyway, and the more, you know, the, 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 the as the war moved to crescendo, we started seeing all kinds, there was rumors of, you know, Wunderwaffens, you know, these wonderful, these wonder weapons that were going to, you know, bail Germany out. And, uh, and the allies were starting to see hints of this stuff, not only in armor and things like that, but uh, in the V1 and V2 rockets, the, the, the V1 basically was a, a, a guided missile. It's like a, a first-generation cruise missile. And then you had the V2, which was actually a, a true ballistic missile. It went up in the atmosphere and, and uh, went supersonic roughly 3,500 miles per hour and was indefensible. There's just no way you could, you could knock it out. Right. You could there, take out there, a V1 with a, with a high-performance aircraft. In fact, Spitfire pilots got very good at knocking off the wingtip and throwing the gyros off. But, you know, it was basically you shoot flak at it, you got barrage balloons, all this stuff. So very low tech versus high tech, right? Asymmetrical warfare. Right. And then um, as, as we start getting, the Allies get closer into Germany itself, Germany proper, you know, we're talking, you know, late 1944, uh, even despite the Battle of the Bulge, the Germans, there's just no way they were going to stem the tide, certainly from the East, the Russians. 
um, you're starting to hear more rumors about uh, chemical warfare weapons and, you know, other, you know, men, you know, huge artillery pieces, all this stuff. And so the allies said, you know, we got to get a handle on wh what's going on. So they created this, this team or an operation called Operation Alsos. And operation Alsos was an intelligence operation that basically put teams kind of like the monument men people may have heard of that went out and found stolen Nazi art. Okay. These guys were looking for the same thing, except for technical advanced weaponry, uh, you know, petrochemical uh, complexes, research centers, all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, you've got on top of that, introducing the ethical layer, you've got these rumors that, you know, there's concentration camps that are full of people that have been human, you know, experimented on for nefarious purposes to further this technical agenda, right? So it's a very, as you said earlier, it's, it's a complex problem with many pieces and certainly the ethical dilemmas are there. Um, it was clear to the allies that the Russians were gonna be an issue. You know, Stalin was mm -hmm. making rumors about, uh, you know, what, how we're going to break up Berlin. He already wanted Poland. Churchill had warned that Stalin was going to take Poland and Czechoslovakia would be an issue. So the precursor to the Iron Curtain is already starting to come to the fore, right? We're getting... Right. And, 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 I, and I think we really need to highlight this because this was, this was the driver for Paperclip and, and a Absolutely. bunch of other operations. I mean, you talk, the, you know, the, the Monument Men, there were a bunch of operations that were carried out towards the end of the war effort um, because it was, it was it, you know, pe people were starting, and in the intelligence circles um, on the Western powers, they were really seeing war is not just about blowing shit up and killing people. It's, it's about, you know, there's tactics, there's, a, there's all this strategy, there's all this stuff that goes into it. And in, that includes when you are fighting a techno war where, the, where technologies are being leveraged against one another. And this has been... Warfare accelerates innovation. And this right. is the thing that, that right. really, that a lot of people fail to realize that there's a lot of good that comes out of war. Plasma, penicillin, you know, air, uh, air trap or the ability to go from point A to point B quickly in an air, all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. However, um, it comes at a very, it, in, in the German sphere, uh, it came at a very heavy human price. You right. know, a lot of what we're talking about was developed on the backs of concentration camp labor and uh, to the point where, uh, you know, there's, and this is, again, the moral thread that runs through this stuff. I think it's also important to realize that the atomic bomb was looming at this time. So you've got mm -hmm. the, 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 the British intelligence establishment had been penetrated extensively by what was known as the Cambridge Five. It's Kim Philby and some other gentlemen that were basically selling the secrets of the Soviets on anything that was, you know, kind of a joint operations uh, oriented uh, secret at the, the level of the allies. You know, they, they, they hadn't given away Ultra or some of the coding, but they certainly were letting, you know, they were, the Russians were aware that the Manhattan Project was underway. In fact, they had a spy that got into the Manhattan Project, a guy by the name of Klaus Fuchs, who was, you know, hoovering up stuff, you know, right under Oppenheimer's nose. So uh, the Russians knew already, here's the, this is the first big technical gauntlet that's thrown down. The Russians had huge numbers of troops, tanks, conventional weapons vis-a-vis -vis the Allies. But, you know, our trump card was the atomic bomb at that point right. and the ability to deliver it. The Russians did not have an intercontinental capability. The B-29 certainly was not a true intercontinental bomber, but it could fly a long, long way. And it could certainly take out Moscow from England, for instance, which was basically a floating bomber base in World War II. So, yeah. So, you know, everybody's on on tinder hooks about who's got the next big thing. You know, what's the next big thing around the corner? Well, right now it's atomic power and it's the ability to leverage uh, to kind of check Russian uh, 
Russian conventional capacity with this, you know, wonder this our own wunderwaffen, our own wonder weapon. Yeah. So then it becomes, you know, as, as the writing's on the wall, that Germany's collapsing. Everybody says, "Well, we got to start. Let's go. We need to find what the Germans were using and see how we can leverage it." You know, and of course, rumors of a missile. You could put an atomic bomb on the top of it. I mean, it's just this stuff is. You know, it, it, it all sounds like a Frederick Forsyth novel after a while, because, I mean, it was, I mean, just really incredibly hard to believe stuff. And sometimes the hardest stuff to believe is actually true. And, and, and Paperclip really starts exposing a lot of this stuff. Well, exactly right. You're really seeing a lot of how state states work. I guess we oh, should yeah. start this with also, Elaine, a, a, another foundation in terms of viewpoints about or how we should think about or look at states and statecraft and relations, both in and out of war situations versus individuals, because we as individuals have moral dilemmas and ethical choices we have to make on a day-to-day basis. Do, should I, which mainly revolve around, you know, should I lie or is it better to tell a little bit of an untruth here to make this person feel better? You know, these are the sort of dilemmas that we are faced with. Or should I steal or not when opportunities present themselves? And, you know, these kinds of moral dilemmas or, you know, cheating on spouses and stuff. Uh, nations have very, very different concerns from that. And when we plot... Well, geo, geopolitics is amoral. And, right. uh, you know, and I, you've heard me say that, you know, I think it was Talleyrand said that you know, states have no no friends, only interests, right? right? You know, friendship implies some kind of quid pro quo, a given and taking. But no, um, you know, there's a, there's a term in diplomacy called rapprochement, which means that you 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 go back and you, you recreate a relationship with somebody that may you may have had a fractious existence with. But inevitably, it's not at this this human connection level. It's it's a level of you know inner of of geopolitical quid pro quo. What am I going to get for it? Um, and, you know, and, and, and what really complicates this is the nature of intelligence agencies and intelligence gathering and, you know, getting one up on the other guy. And, you know, the amount of money that's spent on subverting goodwill is incredible, <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's the way it is. And when I say goodwill, I'm talking about, yes, you know, on one hand you're giving and the other hand you're certainly taking. And, uh, and usually what, what ends up happening is might makes right in geopolitics. I mean, what brought the Russians down, what, you know, brought the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 wasn't geopolitical considerations. It was Star Wars. It was the conventional capability that the Americans had put together uh, that basically bankrupted the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, bread or bombs. And fortunately, Gorbachev and uh, and uh, Boris Yeltsin chose bread. And right. of course, you know, that's we can argue that <laughs> the whole thing has gone to hell in a handbasket since then. But at least. You know, what we knew is a Cold War came to an end through very focused use of of implied threat of, you know, mutually assured destruction and all these other terms. But the fact that, you know, America was able to maintain a global economic hegemony as much as a military hegemony is a true superpower. Right. So, and there and are people. Those are all amoral calculuses. I mean, that's just based on, you know, the ability to field large armies, to spend the money to tax your citizens and to get universal buy-in to do this, right? Yeah. So. Well, it's, it, it, it's, it speaks to what I was reading about today or looking into today, you know, just in prep for this. Um, and of course, d- doing deep dives for days on this on this paperclip stuff, and really sort of thinking about the moral implications of it. Um, 
we had a we had a little bit of a, a you know up until the Enlightenment period, just to put a little bit more hist- historical context on on the framing of these arguments. Um, up until the Enlightenment, pretty much might was right. If you had a bigger army, if you had the better weapons, if you had the will to use them, you were going to well, have you had your the way. Divine right of kings, right? You well, exactly. That it, it translated like you to mandate. That. You know, yes. this, this is I'm speaking through. You know, God speaks to me. Ergo, we march on Spain tomorrow, right? That's right. That's well. The supernatural had a lot to yeah. do with what drove rulers ruling, the right to rule. Yeah, divine right of kings, etc. This is, right. and and we have a hard time in our modern world, I think, with our modern brains and technology and the and the orientation of our society now. I think we have a. I think it's a real challenge to get yourself into that headspace of what it was like when the world was ruled by supernatural forces. I, I really. Really also, think I think this is an ideological shift. So if you're using that period in time as a frame, what the Enlightenment brought was science to the argument of, of, of to counter supernatural behavior. Exactly. Right? And so what you see in the Cold War was the idea of how economic might can trump ideology. Because if you look at the Cold War, it was basically a clash of democracy versus communism. And, mm-hmm. and, and fought in little shithole battles across, the, you know, Vietnam or El Salvador, places like that. That's right. But at the end of the day, what won was economic, uh, prudent economics and goodwill to some extent in the sense that even though America was perceived as, you know, the enemy or the, you know, the, the devil incarnate in some parts of the world, for the most part, we would at least share our wealth and try and induce some semblance of better living in areas versus if you look at the way the Russians behaved, uh, they really, it was their way or the highway. So again, this ideological sparring and this ideological conflict that was, it was immutable for the longest time until the whole, and interestingly enough, all the money we put into the intelligence community, the CIA never saw it coming. It just, it was almost like this spontaneous event in 1989 where the wall just came down. People started talking and before you know it, there's guys chiseling away at the wall and the East German border guards are pulling people across. That's I mean, right. That's right. When we it came, it just, it, it was like a cascade. It was just, uh, what, what's happening? Oh, it was, it was one of the most amazing moments of my entire life. It was. Watching it was that happen. Well. Oh. And I was, you know, being in the military at the time, it was like, holy shit, all this, all this hate and discontent we put up with all this time. Wow, we actually we did it. All our brothers in arms that you know that were killed, or all these frustrating bush wars and all this other stuff. Actually, something came out of it. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure people argue that point in the comments at some point, but hey, I was there and I see the difference. And it's it was it was a, a one of those true black and white victories that you rarely see in geopolitics. I mean, it wasn't nuanced. It just very binary. That's and right. the wall fell, and Russia was just no more. Or I should say, the Soviet Union was no more. Well, exactly. And now we have Russia. And a return of, you know, certain attitudes and ideas, because, of course, that was, you know, there was gonna, that was going to happen. Yeah, and it's always, and so that's this is a good time to introduce. So the mentality of what was going on with Paperclip, yep. you have, uh, you know, Stalin is this, you know, this whole cult of personality is just permeating the entire mindset of, of the bureaucracy in the Soviet Union. The KGB is tasked to find these. Uh, you know, the as many of these soldier, these um, scientists as possible. And understand, too, there was a lot of malice behind that just because of what the Germans had done to the Soviet Union from Barbarossa on. That's I right. Mean, the war in the East, Americans have no concept of how not just nasty the war in, in Eastern, uh, the Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe was during World War Two. I mean, it was heinous. Uh, oh, it was unbelievable. It was, I mean, it was, if you, yeah. 
I've read Ordinary Men, uh, Christopher Browning. Well, even take take the you know take the, the the Holocaust component out of it. Just you know, mass infantry battles where the Soviets are just you know hundreds of thousands of guys just dying in two days. You know, Kursk, Kharkov, Stalingrad. I mean, these were just immense conflagrations. And and the Russians have a long memory. If you go to Russia, the the memorials over there are just they're very poignant because of the German experience. And then you layer on the whole. Einstadtsgruppen and, and Holocaust thing, and it just turns into, uh, you, you, it's unfathomable. I mean, it, it really tells you about the depths of human depravity. Yeah, big time, so, big time. And, and that depravity was, is, becomes the nexus of what the, the, this moral dilemma is in bringing all these Nazi scientists to America is, right? Well, that's, this is exactly it, because we were already, see, it's, it wasn't a matter of, you know, we were all one big happy family of allies during the war, fighting the good fight against the, you know, evil axis. I mean, yes, that did happen, but it wasn't like we were all best buds. And and, no. this, and the Stalin thing is really, really key to understand as, the, as a key component of this picture, because if you don't understand that... Then you could be then you could be looking at paperclip in a in a very very different light, um, and so understanding that Stalin did have a cult of personality that he did have authoritarian um, uh, fantasies dreams I, you know ideals he had he had things he wanted to do and he wanted to grow Russia and he needed to because of lack of resources loss of people I mean millions of people dead as a result of this war and while it was still going. It wasn't clear where exactly the future was going to go. We also don't forget we have hindsight bias with this too. We get to look well, back. But there's a, a huge know. impetus was Lend-Lease. The Russians, sure, they supplied a lot of manpower, but they could not have won the war without American largesse. I mean, the mm-hmm. amount of equipment and and scientific know-how we sent them, and also before, you know, the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact, the, the Germans were exporting technology to the Russians. Russia was a very backwards or technologically backwards country prior to World War II. I mean, the Finns kicked the crap out of them in the Russo-Finnish War. Mm. You know, I mean, they just, all they could do is just throw mass infantry with commissars behind them saying, you better assault or I'm going to shoot you in the back, right? That's with, right. You know, classic 1920s tanks and bolt-action rifle. I mean, it was tragic. That's right. So, That's and then, you know, Stalin comes along and purges his entire armor or uh, officer corps. So there's no... There's no true professional cadre to take these people into battle except NKVD zealots. So the whole thing is just, you know, tragedy waiting to happen. And that's, you know, until they they drew the line at Stalingrad it, because they had a chance to rearm with American and allied help. Exactly. Uh, so, well, when, when would you say, you know, in terms of in terms of me talking about this in this buildup, when would you say it was obvious or acknowledged or really, really understood, let's say, between Britain and America versus Russia, that there was a versus there, that we were going to have a problem with this country in a big way post-World probably 1944, War II. Because in 1944, um, Stalin stops at the Vistula and lets the Germans take Warsaw and just wipe out Warsaw, let them do the dirty work so that he can go in and basically take the capital of Poland and start really digging in. And it was clear that, you know, and this is when Churchill starts saying, you know, there is going to be, we are going to have a big problem with Uncle Joe. And then you've got, you know, the Yalta conferences and, and, and the Potsdam conferences that demand unconditional surrender. You know, the, the allies are trying to present this unified front. But Stalin, for the longest time, was against D-Day. He wanted, you know, and, and he wanted as much... Uh, 
you know, everybody to come in through Italy. I mean, Italy was his big thing because it was the fastest way to get to the Russian front. You know, to him, D-Day was a big distraction. You know, so there was actual, there's empirical and also anecdotal evidence of the KG, at that time, the Czech and the, and the NKD, NKVD trying to uh, turn allied intent against putting all their resources into D-Day because they felt that there's, you know, Russia should, you know, we should focus on the Murmansk line. We should, uh, the Murmansk convoys, we should focus on all, you know, bringing in, you know, the battle in the South because Germany was weak down there, but you know, the Italian campaign was no walk in the park. Mm -hmm. So again, you've got, there was a lot of machinations going on behind this United front, you know, and, uh, and of course, we're trying to get Stalin to maybe go attack the Japanese, right? Because, you know, he'd already, the Japanese and the, and the Russians had animus for many years. So, and he finally did, you know, the German or the Russians turned around and attacked the Japanese, like, I want to say three days before, or right around the time of the first atomic bomb. Mm. So, you know, but that was kind of a bone, right? Okay, we'll just send a couple armor divisions in there and kick the crap out of this kind of the Kwantung army, which was just a very almost a quasi nation state than any kind of military formation because of cronyism and, and, and corruption in the Japanese army in, Man- in Manchuria. So, uh, you know, f- 44 and 45, there's just all, it's, it's all the stuff going on. Right. Meanwhile, you know, guys are dying, you know, trying to take these shitty little villages in, in Germany and the Germans are, you know, tenacious bastards when it comes to the defense. And, and, but as we start going into these villages, we start uncovering these caches of documents, you know, there's rumors of Auschwitz and all of a sudden we get, you know, intelligence from the Russians. Hey, we just captured Auschwitz. And there's, you know, there were three camps at Auschwitz. There was Auschwitz one, Auschwitz two and Auschwitz three. One was the original camp, which was a Polish army barracks with that, you know, it was a, a true concentration camp in the sense of the word, but they did start using gas in 1942. Then you've got Birkenau, which was the true death camp, which was Auschwitz II. Then Auschwitz III, which was the, which which called Buna, which was the uh, IG Farbenwerk. And that was immense. Imagine, uh, you know, something like Newark, New Jersey, staffed by prison labor to Damn. make, uh, yeah, to make uh, artificial petroleum, rubber, all this stuff because the Germans had no, they had a lot of coal. They were good at making steel, but when it came to petroleum oil and lubricants, rubber, things like that, all of their capacity was imported from Romania, Hungary, places like that. Mm. So Farben was a huge conglomerate, just like Volkswagen was just like Krupp, the manufacturer was and their tentacles. When they saw the writing on the wall, they started distributing just like spare distributed manufacturing of weaponry all through Germany IG Farben started distributing its scientists to all these little far-flung villages with documents and kind of creating this very quasi-loose network of science nodes, if you will, of IG Farben and other um, brilliant chemistry and, and weapon scientists. Well, this was also around the time as the war was getting desperate for Germany. And I mean, desperate. Oh, this was also the time when they started pulling back from the outer areas their own Oh yeah, there was a huge consolidation going on. I mean, the Germans Germany were did. Right. I'm sorry. Well, Germany started pulling them back because they needed yeah. the brain power because they suddenly realized they had overextended in Russia. They had they had they had gotten their asses handed to them in two very significant ways, and they realized they needed to start pulling and developing more tech because. They weren't going to lose bad if they didn't come up with something well, fast. And it was also a thread that I think, you know, if you go back to context, Hitler was a, a, a science junkie. 
You know, he gets mm-hmm. a bad rap for being this, you know, megalomaniac lunatic, but he was a very calculating guy when it came to his relationships with uh, industrial donors when he was rising in the party. I mean, he has he had his tentacles in a lot of the industrial fabric and scientific fabric and university fabric of Germany as the Nazi power or Nazi party came to power. So, uh, you know, he was already courting the Farbens of the world and, uh, you know, the the Krupps of the world and all these guys, Blumenvoss, that's the great ship and airplane builders in Hamburg, people like that. So they were already on his radar. They were already being courted. And of course, when the SS came to power, they created a whole r- hierarchy within them. Uh, so you had the Waffen SS, you had the Totenkopfverband, which ran the concentration camps. And then you had the Alemannia SS, which was kind of the Gestapo and the SD and all these guys. And in there was a scientific component that was tasked with keeping, you know, ideological purity in scientific research. So this is where you start seeing this Nazi thread through a lot of these really brilliant, brilliant minds. And, you know, scientists for the most part are apolitical, but in Germany, you had to be in the party to go to the good schools. You had right. to be in the party to get grants to do your, 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 your work. So it was, you know, you were a hostage to fortune ideologically really to advance your science career. Well, exactly. And, and this is where, this is the re, this is the actual beginning of paperclip is because, yes, because what happened was, so German start, Germany starts pulling these intellectual resources back. You had engineers like, you know, real, real high level, high class guys doing you know, engine work on the front lines. You had, um, yeah, you had, you know, you had guys who were um, medically, you know, advanced, who were out doing first aid stuff or, you know, doing doctor work out on the front lines. Well, they start pulling these guys back who are capable of doing research, real, you know, real heavy hitters. They test their, well, let me finish. They test their loyalty. They make sure that they're still good with the party. And like Germans do, uh, especially then, I suppose. I mean, I don't want to, you know, typecast everybody or stereotype everybody, but um, there is this amazing bureaucratic efficiency with these people where yeah. they have lists and records of everything. And they started listing all this brain power, right? They started figuring out who are these guys, collecting them up. And it was those lists, actually. It was one, it was, it was part of one of those lists. Ogenberg, Ogen, Ogenberg list. I forget how the guy's name's pronounced, but it was some, it was, they found it at the University of Heidelberg in a toilet bowl. That's right. That's exactly right. They found it in a goddamn toilet bowl, a bit hidden in there, this list of these guys. And so this was the beginning Ozenberg, of. Osenberg, O S E N B E R G. And it was at Bonn University. There we go. There we go. So, so they find this list and they go, Hey, wait a minute. Right. And this is already, this is already entering into a situation where they are the, the, um, uh, like I said, the war ends in May 90, May 45 for Germany. And they've got this list. They've got to figure out they've America or the intelligence community and the Western powers, let's say, have uh, have a few huge problems, as we have been laying out the groundwork of here, including what's going to happen following this war, not only with Germany, but with this this super state Russia. Right. And. And uh, which is which is making these noises that are not great noises. And in 1946, in fact, to sort of add to this picture, it wasn't just us who were collecting up at lists of these names or looking for these German scientists who had done things that we really were curious about and wanted to know about. It was also a matter of the Russians were after these guys, too. And this started becoming like this human resources question of what are we going to do with these people? 
how do we, we got to find them? We got to figure out what we're going to do with them. I mean, do we march them out back and just put a bullet in their head, or do we? What are we going to How what are we going to do with this? With these people? This is human capital we're talking about, and um, and so plans started being made and formed to round these people up because if we didn't. Well, see, one of the big burning questions at the time, and it, this was a real consideration, uh, which I'd love for you to speak to, is uh, if we don't get these guys, Russia will. So it's interesting that Truman came out with a presidential directive that said, yes, I'm in favor of this, but we cannot use Nazis or anybody that is ideologically suspect or, you know, has been convicted of, of crime, war crimes or whatever. Mm hmm. Um, but <laughs> it was nice that he and, said that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and later on, you know, 30 years later, he said, well, yeah, but I knew we had to do other things, you know? Mm -hmm. So here, right off the bat, here's, you know, you know, Harry Truman's a very interesting guy, but we, we won't talk about him right now. But I think that one of those, here's this, this ethical smokescreen that says, okay, we, you know, I'm, I'm covering my collective ass by saying that, uh, I, I recognize that there's a there's some you know ethical dilemmas and and things that we have to be aware of here and bringing these people to the United States, but you know big double underlined red super Helvetica caps, but uh, we probably are going to have to turn the other way, wink wink nudge nudge. So the Soviets got six thousand of these guys, twenty two hundred of which were uh, scientists. I yeah. mean, they literally went in at with, at gunpoint and kidnapped people. Well, that, and this was a this was something I wanted to highlight because this was an early yeah. on. This was in 22 October 1946, very specific that day. Um, the Soviet operation took place where they went in and um, they literally uh, transplant research and production research centers um, such as the relocated V2 rocket center. Um, at Nordhausen from Germany, they just picked it up and moved oh, yeah. it into the Soviet Union, right? Well, they've been, you know, they had been, they they had this whole thing of reparations, right? And they literally picked up parts of Germany and moved them back beyond the Urals, so they were just, you know, sorry, ha ha, wink wink, nudge nudge. It was, uh, it was rapacious. But again, right. putting yourself in what the, you know the Germans did to Russia, you know, in scorched earth, you know, payback's a bitch, basically. Yeah, so, basically, karma. And again, this was a way to accelerate their, their ability to reverse engineer and to become superior in their scientific ability to the West. You know, right. there is something about a command economy that allows you to do that. You know, that's why China was able to ramp so up so militarily. The reason Russia always was such a juggernaut is it's a lot easier to say, you know, okay, Miokini Grievich, go build us a thousand MiGs and we'll worry about tractor production and bread later. You know, because we want to throw these into East German or East German airfields as a hedge against all those American F-15s across the way, right? Exactly, and, and, they and were... that's just done on you know legislative fiat. I'm going to sign this degree, right? And that's this goes right. back. To, and this is why paperclip was just so easy to pull off because there was this bureauc There's almost a bureaucratic inertia in, to some extent on how these guys got caught up. They, it wasn't until 2014, I think, that um Stuggen or whatever his name was there's a pre there's a, a prize name for him in in american science in, in nasa for human uh for space science yep they finally retired it because all of a sudden his past experimenting on concentration camp victims came to the fore exactly 2040 it is 2014 so exactly. you know it's like we're never rid of world war ii and at that time you know it was we're looking at Jesus, here's this huge monolithic entity across the wall. How do we, you know, how do we get this hedge? And, and it could be argued that 
we got probably the cream of the cream. Paperclip was actually pretty successful in that. And so, I mean, Venner von Braun, uh, Brenneman, who, you know, is the, the father of sweat burning aerodynamics, brilliant, brilliant aerodynamicist. You know, it was, it was very much uh, a, a, a situational ethical dilemma, I think. I do too. And that's, and, and we'll talk about that. Um, I, after we, I, I wanted to finish laying out what happened. Sure, yeah. My apologies. Go ahead. But no, but for sure. Cause it is, it, 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 it opens the door to all kinds of situational ethics questions. Um, to be clear about this, this was not a small operation that was executed by, you know, lower level people in the state department or something, or some, you know, weird, uh, people on the ground who just sort of came up with this weird idea all of a sudden. This was a this was actually executed by uh, uh, at the Joint Chiefs of Staff level. Yes, right. This was from the very top, and all branches of the military were involved in this. All branches of military intelligence were involved in this at that time. We didn't yet have a CIA, but we had an OSS, and we had some various other alphabet organizations. We had this and, group called the Joint Intelligence Operatives. Uh, yep agency or objectives agency and it was a you know this amalgam of of all these players and you know the cia hadn't come to the fore yet so this is you know what was at that time you know the the it was oss and it was uh, army intelligence i'm sorry army intelligence intelligence. yeah right and they were also had these technical you know all through the war there were what they call technical uh intelligence teams and what those guys would would go out and look at german armor or aircraft and Mm -hmm. they were always looking at what the next best thing was and they were rolled up into this yeah i thought that was interesting there was this group called the t-forces yes and they were guys you know they were all over they were big in 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 the south pacific looking at japanese zeros and and radar you know japanese had radar at, at one point and so it was always, you know, what it was a technical intelligence and it was very, very crucial to winning the war. And because the minute you find if you can compromise an, an enemy's advantage, it's incalculable. And you don't know what the calculus is going to be until you get contact again or you're, you're in the heat of battle or whatever. So right. time is always of the urgency on this thing. So these guys were literally in Jeeps driving all over Germany into these little villages you know, relatively unarmed, not knowing what the hell was going to be around the corner, looking for some really dastardly dudes and, you know, masses of paperwork. Exactly. Exactly. And these are, you know, the funny thing about this stuff is these are these are absolutely fascinating stories that would make amazing movies and nobody even touches this stuff. It's so funny. No, no, it's not. It's it's really is quite something. So, okay, so basically, bottom line is because of all of these factors that we've laid out and probably a few more that we haven't, there was a lot of attention on getting these resources, let's say, these human resources, these Nazi scientists, these German scientists, to um, to either play ball with us or somehow otherwise be dealt with so that they didn't become um, assets for our enemy. And it mm-hmm. was and it was lining up pretty clear that Russia was gonna be again us. Uh, come yeah. come the end of the war. We were not going to all be continue to be pals. And so when you're facing that situation and your job is to ensure the security of your country and you're a patriot and you love your country, then you've got some, some decisions to make. And those decisions with these people were, okay, we're going to bring them over and we're going to utilize them and we're going to take that brain power and we're going to make it work for America. 
And that was the decision that was made. And uh, well, also you know. back up just a tad, there was, I mean, the ethical decisions began in Germany before they ever came here in mm -hmm. the sense that, so you had the Nuremberg trials, which was a huge uh, kind of a, a show trial to show that, you know, we would not, and that was for the big wigs, right? But later on, you had what was called the doctor's trials. And what the doctor's trials was, was a, a Nuremberg-like trial for all the, the concentration camp doctors that were uh, alleged to have experimented on humans. And not, you know, in the Mengele sense where you're injecting blue dye into people's eyeballs and all that. It was more... Uh, in the case of Rausch down in, in, in Dachau, using uh, concentration camp victims to experiment on the effects of high altitude pressurization on mm -hmm. humans or cold water and all that. This is, mm -hmm. I mean, early human factor science, aeronautics. I mean, but yet you're using humans as guinea pigs. That's so right. they were um, testing stuff on temperature, on um, high G acceleration, on, I mean, they were doing stuff that you would never imagine would be at all acceptable to do on other human beings yeah. and they were doing it and they did it in japan and they did it in germany absolutely and to that point there was basically a blanket amnesty given to a lot of these guys to come to the united states because their research was so cutting edge quote unquote a lot of the doctors in the doctor's trials comprise the nucleus of the folks that came over in paperclip Right. And I forget the Air Force. The, I don't have it to hand right here, but there was a, a two star Air Force general that basically wrote them off and just said, you know, we need this more than we need, to, you know, these guys in jail. Hmm. Now, some of that caught up with them later on, but not to the point where, you know, it was any clear cut may culpa that these guys were nasty dudes. That's right. You know, and all this plays into rocketry in the space race. So right. the ability, you know, for humans to live in, in you know, highly contentious, highly dangerous environments, all this stuff. And, you know, Werner von Braun basically ran a slave camp, you know, Penamunda and, and, and Dora were all his Mittelbrow, the Mittelbrow works where all these uh, missiles were built. It was all concentration camp labor. So, you know, it was a, very much a wink, wink, nudge, nudge in his case too. Yet that's the right. guy took us to the moon. Well, so, and, that's, and that's where we come to <laughs> this first ethical question, which I'll kind of just sort of throw out as the dead fish on the table. And, and let's talk mm -hmm. about it to start with, right, which is the big one, the biggest question of all, does the end justify the means? We now have, we're in a position talking about this, where we get to look at it from the point of view of the time period and the people and the players and the factors that they were contending with, not knowing what the future was going to bring. Yeah. But then we also have this advantage where you and I are talking about this in 2020, where we've seen the results of this and the consequences of it, uh, intended and unintended. And some of those consequences were amazing. They well, have, they, you know, those technological advances that these individuals, no other individuals brought us to this. These guys did. Yeah, they did. And they happened yeah, and to be air travel, air travel, medicine, a lot yeah. of stuff. And That's right. This is very far-reaching. It's not just it, – it is the rocket science, but there's a lot more to it than that. Absolutely. And I think <clears throat> it's really hard – unless you grew up during that time, it's really hard to understand the, the, the looming threat and the existential weight of the atomic – the threat of atomic warfare. Yep. And it's hard to get across to kids these days what the it's like to have lived that in, way. And from, you know, in the late 40s and 50s is what we're talking about. Why pay, that's what was, you know, a great justification for paperclip in the mind's eye of those people that were involved in it was, 
you know, if it's not us, it's going to be the Russians. And I'll be goddamned if the communists are going to get this stuff in a way, justifiably so. I mean, right. they had a big crappy track record when it came to human rights. Well, you know, and, so and when I mean, you look at when you well, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, just you, and it's really is apples and oranges when you look at how the Russians dealt with these guys versus how we dealt with them. I mean, we were, you know, we kind of we coddled these guys in a way in some in some in some of these circumstances. These guys were really well taken care of. And the well, guys who brilliant. ended up in Russia they were brilliant cultured people. These are we're not talking about, you know you know, mafiosa thugs with, you know, five o'clock shadows and, you know, the right. grunt were incredibly bright people. Yep. And a lot of that, you know, there were ideologues, ideologues in there that were Nazis. And, but there were also people that were, you know, a Nazi for, you know, Nazi for pay, if you will. But the problem was, is that we didn't make the distinction. I think, you know, in hindsight, we're looking at what was the distinction and mm-hmm. how much of that, their avarice were we able to, you know, to kind of set aside for their contribution. And at the time, I think it was justified to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, these guys outside of say the Von Braun's of the world that, you know, were overseeing these huge things. I mean, and he, you know, maybe he should have gone to jail for 10 years. Did you research in there? Maybe you did research while he was in jail. I mean, you know, why was, you know, there weren't, we weren't thinking outside of the box too about trying to balance accountability with, these people, ability, you know, their ability to, to accelerate us in the innovation war. No, it was very much a calculation about resource management. Yes, and, it, and that is basically, that's one of the things that I wanted to highlight about this because, th- it, and why I went out of my way earlier to try to start the conversation about hu- about individual ethics versus group or government or, you know, nation ethics, because it's because the considerations are so different. You know, when when you're a nation state and you have, you know, you you can measure your technological excellence in some field on a spectrum or a scale. And when you want it to go up, you have to invest money, time, human resources into that problem to make that solution happen. And you don't necessarily think about, you know, ethics is not part of that particular equation. No, it's very economic. And it's, 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 a, it's very much an economic talk, a return on investment, if you will. That's right. You know, and, and there's an economy of scale issue to it when it comes down to how quickly I can accelerate my, techno- my, my leap in the technology curve. That's right. And, if that's, and, and that- if that's the guiding principle, if that's the thing that's, that's the moral good at a nation yeah. state level, and it is, because if you're advancing the technology of the nation, as a, then as a whole, you are uplifting the nation because you're making it easier, faster, better for everybody in that nation to get along, live, you know, have a higher quality of life, etc. So that is the calculus that you're using to make those decisions, not, oh, were a couple of these guys who were working on this, were they Nazis? You know, that's not necessarily part of the picture. No. You know, and and I know there are people who think, well, it should be. And you go, okay, well, that's why we're having this discussion. There's a very deliberate cognitive dissonance to it, really. Yeah. And I I can understand it. And I think the other thing, too, we were mistaken, again, poor intelligence that we thought the Russians, when they stole the bomb, had a means to deliver it. And they also had a bunch of them. They had, I think they had two for about 10 years because they didn't have their scientific capital wasn't up to where we were because of this acceleration. Not only 
from paperclip, but understand that the Nazis, I mean, they talk about an own goal by persecuting the Jews, some of the most brilliant minds and nuclear physicists in the world fled to the United States, Einstein and, right. and all these other guys. So, uh, you know, you're looking at, it was, it was crazy again, because of ideology, you have this ridiculous outcome. That's right. That's so, right. And, and so in a way, Hitler's own personal morality, you know, was one of the biggest impediments to German surviving Germany's survival, absolutely. you know, absolutely. and mm. the brain drain, you know, from Germany to the U.S. was significant or to the Western countries because they weren't necessarily fleeing to Russia. <laughs> you know, yeah. they were fleeing to no, the Western it's interesting. I, I'm going through another reread of, of, of Annie's book, uh, Annie Jacobson, who wrote mm-hmm. Paperclip. And one of the things that the discussion really doesn't get into a lot is what kind of regret or any kind of um, feelings these guys might have had that they were in going to a Western democracy that maybe they had a way to atone for past behavior. Yeah. And yet my gut tells me they didn't because there's a certain arrogance to science and a certain arrogance to these guys that they're not learning. They're not looking at the warm, fuzzy, emotional thing about past behavior. They're looking at it again. And, you know, in, in the scientific calculus, how do I get this breakthrough with what I have to hand? And if it's, you know, using state sponsorship, Hey, I'll do it. You know, and this is, you know, this is a thing that drives great science, big science. It, it, it needs the sponsors of nation states. And, yeah, because so you need that money in time. That's right. You know, and dangling this carrot of, you know, unlimited wealth and Eisenhower America, or, you know, Truman slash Eisenhower America. I mean, we were, I mean, we were on a roll, you know, and so here's a, here's a place to do it. That's right. And um, this actually is, this is one of the, one of the talking points I was, I was, uh, wanted to get into as well is that, in, you know, information or data you know, is apolitical. It, it, it doesn't have an inherent value. The only value a piece of information has, whether it's a moral value or a, a, an intellectual value or a technological value, the only value it has is what we assign to it. Yes. Right? Information is, does, it is neutral. It's just information. It's what you, it's what you think about it and, and what, what you do framework with it. That, and what the framework of that that assignment may be, so there's a values framework, there's an ethical framework, but then there's a technological framework, there's, you know, a social, institutional, a social economic framework, and all this stuff. And in the calculus at that time was in a geopolitical framework. You know, there was no, there, you know, again, we go back to this, this thing of amorality. So, and the urgency of getting ahead was just what it was all about. So well, exactly. You know, and, and that's in, in any business, you know, time equals money. I mean, it's that's the great equation. You either have time, resources, or money, you know, and, and the 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 trial out of the, the triangle. That's right. And this so, this we see you see so so you could look at you know you look back on this as a human being now. Like bringing it back to the individual level for a second. You look at this as a human being and you go, okay, these were horrible people who, you know, these scientists, some of these scientists, I'm not going to talk collectively about all of them. I, I, you know, when I say they, okay. I, I mean some of them. Well, you know, we, we've got a large body, enough of a, a, a large enough body of people here that you're going to have a great deal of variety amongst them as to loyalty to the Nazi party, you know, commitment to the Nazi party, having worked and enjoyed subjugating other people in slave labor camps or something versus... Well, also, don't forget amongst you know. themselves. You know, there's mm-hmm. something to be said to be working with highly elite people. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is this was one of the reasons that we really wanted to bring them over as a body because, you know, science is collaborative, right? Nothing right. happens in a vacuum. So I think that that was another big impetus here was that we keep these guys together uh, and, you know, and just let them play for lack of a better term. Well, that was exactly what we did. And we gave them the playing ground and the money to do it. And and Von Braun had, I think, 140 guys under him uh, yeah, from huge, the get-go. I mean, the stuff that Von Braun did, he was a natural organizer. I mean, mm-hmm. he was able to, uh, I mean, it, you know, and he was after, you know, the spear to clean up the slave labor thing in the sense that, look, I can't build, I can't build this stuff with corpses, you know? And it wasn't so much he was having this, you know, this, this humanistic calculus to it. It was a matter of, you know, how am I going to do this with these guys? You know, give me warm bodies to build stuff with. Right? That's right. That's right. So, so uh, they got think, that here. Yes. They you know, did. where they didn't have it there. And then, you know, when they were, when it, when they had the, the budget that they needed and the resources that they needed. And this was out in White Sands. This was in... Winsville um, and, and places like that. Yeah, and, they were scattered and, around. And we were eager, you know, the, the receptivity of these, that these guys received when they went to these places can't be underestimated. Right. Well, so that in a way we the... negated, in, in a way that receptivity negated, you know, perceived, you know, their, their fear of maybe being, you know, persecuted or whatever, you know, were they going to always have the shadow over their head? And we're just saying, ah, oh, you know, here's the second coming of, you know, technological coming, you know, before we know it, we've got, you know, V2s down at White Sands being used to launch proto-satellites and all this stuff, you know, and it's like, yeah, that just saved us 20 years and $20 million or some damn thing. Well, and that's, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's one of the other questions on this. Let's, um, before we go there though, let me, let me, um, let me make this point on the individual ethics of this with the scientists. As a body, I think you could probably safely say that these guys, the pursuit of knowledge was their quest. Yep. Right. Very specific knowledge. They had very specific areas of interest, rocketry, medicine, you know, et cetera, engineering. These were problems that needed to be solved. And they these were people who were who were absolutely determined to solve them. They wanted answers to these questions. And this was this was their life work. This was not a part-time occupation for these people. You hit it when you define. In fact, when I was in academia, you know, you find yourself by your work. Yep. And that work is this body of research, the way you think, what you get up in the morning and think about when you're shaving, right? Yep. Is everything that you're going to do that day toward your work. So that's a very important point. Exactly. And this, and this was their work. I believe at the human level um, that it was more about that for these people, this group of people, than it was about being Nazis. Oh, I agree. You know, we're not talking about Himmler here. We're not talking about Hitler. We're not talking about Goring. We're talking about scientists, you know, very, very smart people coming out of Germany, which was the intellectual powerhouse of the world. And again, elite, right? These guys ran in very high circles. So, So I think their life revolved around that more than it did about the swastika and the and the eagle, right? Well, yeah, and you're going to always hear this kind of, you know, boys from Brazil's component to that, or, you know, these guys were involved in wanting to resurrect the Fourth Reich, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, that there is probably some of that somewhere because, mm-hmm. again, these guys are ideologically driven as well in some extent. But at the end of the day, they're scientists before they're ideologues. 
Right. And I think, you know, so that's a valid point, but I'm not going to give these guys a buy too much on that. I, think, I still think there was some fervent Nazism in there. And I yeah, think yeah that- no, I, I was going to say, I was going to, I, I have to say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that to give them all a big pass. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is present a, an accurate picture of reality. Yes. Because if we're going to make moral or ethical judgments about this situation, then it requires that we understand the headspace these people were in, or at least have some concept of it. Um, because we're judging them. We're, we're saying, you know, you as a human being suck. You as a human being should be dead because right. of what you believe or what you did. So we better know what we're talking about when we make judgments like that. And that's why I bring this up, not to give them a justification, but just as part of the picture. You know, some of so so if you're driven by the quest for answers and you're doing that under a Nazi flag cuz that's the circumstances of your life in terms of where you were born, what you can do, where where the education and where the resources are for you to do the work that you're going to do. Right. You know, and then this opportunity presents itself because the Germans get their asses kicked, rightly so. But hey, guess what? We'll still let you do your work, and this time you're going to work for us. Oh, okay, I'll go do that. And the other thing too is that again, the the animus for these guys against the Russians. Mm -hmm. Nobody really voluntarily went to go work for the Russians because they knew, uh, you know, just the history between the two countries that it would be very problematic. That they'd probably end up in some isolated you know, dacha, you know, amongst a bunch of other dachas with other scientists in a highly controlled environment. And that's actually what happened. So there's also a quality of life calculus that these guys made on top of this that can't be underestimated. I mean, who wants, who doesn't want to go to the United States, right? Well, exactly. I mean, and they were, and, and let's remember, these guys were marched at gunpoint into Russia for, yes, they were. you know, those yes, guys were. that Russia got. So it was very, very much a, 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 a we, we dealt with this in very different ways. Um, of course, one of the other questions here um, that could be tossed off and very easily sort of thrown out and dismissed this whole thing is, well, yeah, but, you know, we would have discovered all these things anyway. Right? Um, I don't think so. I, I don't either. It would have taken, taken us a long time. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you know? That's right. Um, I don't think so either. And, and, this, and let's, take a, let's talk for just a second about the full extent of what we're talking about in terms of what these people did for us. Um, because they, when they came over here, let's make no mistake, they did it for us. We didn't disseminate this information to the big wide world, you know, the second they were giving it to us. This was national security stuff for a long time. And, uh, and this is what enabled America to become the superpower that, you know, that it became. This was a lot to do with that. It wasn't just winning World War II. It was all the stuff that we, that we did fo- right following it, uh, mm-hmm. including the space race. So, this, so the V2 program opened the door to the rocketry for the Saturn V project, which Van Werner von Braun was, was the, the, the uh, head of. You also have the swept wing concept came out of another German scientist, uh, which right. enabled supersonic flight and, and a whole bunch of other things with, with airplanes. I think there's something really important to remember here. We leveraged the aeronautical technology far better initially than we did rocketry. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of fits and starts, and I'm sure everybody's seen these you know, movies of the early Mercury program. Mm-hmm. These the right stuff. And it, it's it, the idea of using a gyroscope to keep something level as it's, you know, accelerating into space is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. 
So just because we had these V1s or I'm sorry, these V2s to re-engineer or reverse engineer, you know, you still needed this collective horsepower. And, and Von Braun was constantly fighting for money. It wasn't until Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon that we really cut loose the funds to make this thing happen. Mm. I mean, White Sands was a backwater for a long time. And it was mostly looking at, you know, ballistic missiles for the army to use as a, you know, in a tactical sense, you know, against other armies, that kind of thing. You know, space was still uh, nice to have, but, you know, how do we use this in a, you know, we were building atomic cannons for crying out loud, right? We could, so we could shoot atomic, you know, we didn't get it. And all of a sudden, you know, a whole world opens up with the idea that here's now a national will to go to the moon and to get there, we're going to have to spend a lot of money. But, you know, it was, Kennedy was brilliant in the way he pitched that. And Von Braun was able to paint the scientific vision to make that happen. So, you know, well done him because it wouldn't have happened without him. That's right. The whole, every time you see it, you know, the Johnson Space Center, those rows and rows of control, all that stuff, that was Von Braun. You know, the guy was brilliant. So you have to, you have to be able to, it's, it's one thing to get the brain power. It's another to be able to sit there and really understand what you have. And I think it took us a while to, you know, once we worked through some of the, the very things we're talking about now, the ethics of it, we had to collectivize our energies to figure out how we're going to pay for it, how we're going to get schools, you know, the whole nations, all the institutions that feed this stuff, STEM, we would call STEM now, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, all that allied with this goal, you know, and in a sense, one that was peaceful. It wasn't necessarily, yes, ballistic missiles and throw weights and all that for, you know, killing commies was one component, but Kennedy was very shrewd in saying, no, this is for mankind. We want to, in fact, Neil Armstrong says that one small step for man. That's right. That's right. So we want to do this in a way that it benefits all of us. Um, You know, and so again, you could argue that it was another, you know, an act of atonement by these guys. Who knows? Well, you, well, you, well, that's exactly right. And it, and it really is just a matter of us trying to make ourselves feel better, I think, when we start thinking about, well, did they turn over a new leaf? Did they reform? Did they give up their Nazi ways, etc.? I kind of thought about that question quite a bit. And I wondered, does it even matter, you know, to the questions we're talking about? Now, I mean, these guys are all dead. They're, you know, this isn't a thing anymore where we're going to go back and punish them. They lived the life they lived. and. Yes. And we, for the most part, let's be super, super clear right now, and maybe I should have led with this actually, but we are the beneficiaries of these people in ways that, you know, we take it, we take for granted so much of, the, of what has become our daily life is directly, not indirectly, directly due to what these guys did in NASA and with uh, with and and other technological areas. I mean, it's engineering, it's science, it's rocketry, it's it's air flight. It is a number of things. Um, well, and it's fertilizing. It's fertilizing the academic their, their fields. See, this mm-hmm. is the other thing: is when you bring this kind of cutting edge intellectual capacity to a place. I mean, you know, we always hear about Princeton or Stanford. I mean, back in that day, Princeton was a place you went for physics and all this stuff, or UC Berkeley, perhaps. But what the space race opened up as, as a result of seeing how the quality of intellectual capital that Paperclip provided was the idea of a broader educational system in this country, junior colleges, not so that everybody should have the opportunity to leverage their skills in science, math, and engineering. 
you know, Germany had a phenomenal Schule university network that leveraged these guys and research was just always pollinating. And, you know, we looked at education before paperclip or before World War II as something that was very much of the elites. And I mean, it's always been that way. It's certainly in Britain, you know, public schools, Oxford, Cambridge, all that. Here, you know, you had Blue Blood Wasps that went to Yale and all this. It was always kind of the East Coast establishment. But what Paperclip says is, you know, we're going to be going to the West. We have, we need places, open spaces to do this stuff. We need to draw on those resources. We need human capital that we aren't constantly importing from all over the world. And so you have the rise of a more uh, egalitarian education system, which is something I don't think gets near enough acknowledgement is, is a side of this. No, you're absolutely right. We we don't look at the bigger picture of this stuff because we get drowned in the details. And, and well, it's always Nazis now. It's Nazis. They're bad guys. You know, well, all this stuff. It's, it's all labels, you know. And that's right. It's, it's, you just got to back off the labels. And, and, and people don't wear a label for their life, as you said. I think this is the other thing, too, mm-hmm. is that and it's a it's a microcosm of the problem with society right now is, you know, you're, if, you, if you're not in one of these camps, you know, some social justice warrior is going to put you one in and then label you indirectly with it because that's where you belong. That's right. It just doesn't work that way. You know, we are we are dynamic individuals. And these guys were certainly in very dynamic times, too. If you look at the technological acceleration that went on in the 50s and 60s and 70s, just independent of the space race was phenomenal. So this is they were an impetus to that. And if we'd sat around and labeled these guys, oh, you're a Nazi, you can't do that, or you know, you're you're a Republican, or you're a Democrat, or whatever. And, and we were doing this despite McCarthyism. Remember that whole That's right. about That's communism. Right. Uh, the whole thing would have just come to a grinding halt. So sometimes there's it's it's prudent to sit there and say it's all right. You know, maybe we look the other way a bit. But, you know, I guess the, 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 then the question becomes here, how much is a bit, you know, is it this, you know, the well, that's, the door and then all this, this, this nastiness come in or do we sit there and say, yes, we acknowledge that, but here's the greater good. Exactly. Well, the greater good equation really comes into, into play here. And that's, and that's really the equation at the end of the day that we're looking at, you know, um, because, you know, we have gone into so much of the detail of this on purpose because I wanted to highlight that this is a question of situational ethics and um, not broad guiding rules of ethics. It's not, you know, the takeaway from this is not, oh, well, there were good Nazis and bad Nazis, or, oh, well, the Nazis, I guess, uh, you know, we can apologize for some of them or something. I'm not apologizing for any of it. Not one little bit. They were terrorist, asshole, motherfucking murderers. They were the worst people who have ever lived as a group of people. They factory production lined murder in a way that has never happened on this planet. So there is no effort here to apologize for these people. (laughs) You know, that is not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about looking at the complicated fact that we are all the beneficiaries of monsters. And that's really weird. It's a weird situation, you know, because some of these guys were really fucking bad people. Yeah. You know, but the situation was the situation. And so were we going to let them go to Russia? No. Were we going to march them out back and shoot them? No. So what were we going to do with them? What do we do, right? And what do we need as a nation right now you know 1945 what do we need 
we need brains. We need capital. We need to invest in building up our technological advantages because look at this big-ass country over here that's got millions and millions of people over 14 time zones with all these resources and a guy leading it who's a little on edge. You know? yeah, I think the other thing, too, is that we were winding down war production. And, you know, so what's the next best thing? What are we going to do with all this excess capital, all this excess production capability? Yeah. You know, how do we leverage, That's you know, right. German technology or, 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 you know, the technology of warfare, essentially, and industrialize it, commercialize it in a way that benefits society, creates jobs, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's another component to this, too, is that, you know, idle mines and all this stuff, you know, we can't, you know, keep building warships. So how do we do this? That's right. So I think there's, you know, it's a multifactored thing, but it's very it was very much focused on, you know, big defense stuff and all that. I don't want to make light of it. But as we started getting into that and we really see the results in the Korean War, swept wing technology, MiGs versus uh, F-86 Super Sabres, uh, radar, all these other things. And it, you know, we started the, 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 the German, the, the paperclip dividend, if you will, was relatively quick. I mean, mm-hmm. and then it paid off in spades with the Apollo program. So um, when you look on, in terms of relative ROI, paperclip was an incredibly well thought out, you know, well-resourced, highly uh, lucrative investment because I mean, what, 1940, I mean, we were, you know, Gemini flew in 65. We were on the moon in 69. Mm-hmm. I mean, 20, a little over 20 years, you know, these guys were able to do this. That's and I right. mean, that's incredible stuff. And we were not there otherwise. No, gosh, no. We just weren't. You know, we had the brain power to develop the atomic weapon. We did that. Well, look at the collective angst when Sputnik went up. I mean, it was just literally right. a volleyball with a radio, you know, That's radio. Right. <laughs> or when they launched like, oh, a monkey God, up, you know? or a dog up into space. or that. Everybody was freaking the fuck out, you know? Yeah. It was like, oh my God, oh my God, because let's face it, if we were the, one of the fears, I mean, we talk about it in terms of the hysteria, but one of the actual real fears back then was that these guys were going to launch a weapons platform up there. That's exactly right. Or they could spy on us or, you know, they could prop, you know, they could broadcast propaganda to us. That's right. All these things. I mean, the Red Menace was very real. It was you a know? thing. Beyond, you know, McCarthy, you know, the problem with McCarthy is he diluted the threat when there was a very real threat. Yep. You know? And there's it. a reason That's why right. SAC, the Strategic Air Command existed. I mean, there was a real threat. There's a reason why there was a trilateral uh, approach, submarines, air delivery, and, and ground delivery of nuclear missile. I mean, mutual assured destruction uh, was a hedge as nasty as it want to be and the millions that we waste on it, bread, you know, guns versus butter. But that's that was the, the existential threat we were facing as a result of this stuff. Big time. Big um, time. And it was uh, it was just it's a it's a rough situation. And, and in case the, the dots haven't connected yet, uh, let me make this let me say this out loud, because um, we're also talking about the fact that because rocketry and aerospace advanced to the degree that they did, we got satellites, which led to GPS, which leads to your phones which leads yeah. to the internet, Wi-Fi, wireless, all of it. Our Heart- entire society all that is stuff. built on the backs of not of of, of people who were Nazis. Yeah. I mean, or it's even, a, it's a damn uncomfortable truth. On the backs <laughs> of concentration camp labor and Dora Mittelbrow. And yeah. Mittelbrow. 
Yeah. I mean, this is the shit that keeps you up at night and gives you headaches if you start, you know, really contemplating all the various ethical dilemmas that this presents. But this is life, man. This is like as complicated as it gets. And the decisions that these that the that our leaders had to make during those times or that they went ahead and made are the most complicated decisions or the toughest parts of being a world leader that we don't really talk about a whole lot because these are the tough choices that most of us don't want to go anywhere near. I mean, who wants it to be responsible for some to, of this? You know? It speaks to the power of, of, of belief in the sense that what would, how, is there something, you know, there, there's, there are certain traits among nation states or the, the populations of nation states. You know, the Germans have always wanted strong leadership. The Japanese are very much a monoculture. The, you know, the French have this idea of, you know, the quality of life above all things. We as Americans, we, we look at, you know, freedom of the individual, all these things. Every, yep. every country has its, its thing. thing. Yep. And you wonder if, if it had been Hitler, if there had been somebody else that, I mean, Germany was in, in, in very dire straits after World War I. Mm-hmm. The Versailles Treaty was completely onerous, very, you know, very punitive. So, I mean, it was ripe for this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the communists were very well entrenched in Germany at the time. So, you know, it was always street battle between the Nazis and the communists. What if Hitler had figured out a way, or somebody else besides Hitler had come along and said, you know, I'm going to lift you up with technology, but I'm not going to use it on the back of this, you know, nonsense of various superiority and this made up, you know, pseudo ethic, you know, eugenic science and all this nonsense. Yep. And sat there and just done a, a Roosevelt and come up with some type of new deal for the German people, you know, and, and, and leverage these brains, right? This is the thing I often th- think about where would Germany have been with the, you know, the Werner Heisenbergs and the, and the, and the Einstein. And Germany could have been, Germany could have literally have been the intellectual superpower of the planet. Oh, yeah. And they could have ruled through, you know, different means than military might. Well, yeah. benign competence in the sense that, you know, the trains run on time, we'll export our technology, you know, we're at the center of Europe, we're doing all these great things. And as a hedge, you know, what West Germany was, you know, or Berlin, West Berlin, this beacon of light in this very dark communist, you know, oppressive society, what a great hedge Germany would have been if Russia had still risen, but yet... Germany had been there to meet it with attack. You know? Yeah, would have been a whole different world. Would have been there's, a whole different you know, world. It's a great, you know, technology, app, you know, rationally applied is a great equalizer. You know, there's this idea of disintermediation and things that make things easier. But there's always a cost. You know, everybody's going on about electric cars. But yet, you know, what? how much does it take to, you know, in precious metals or rare earth metals and dirt to make a battery? You know, yep. so we're always doing this, this cost-benefit analysis thing. And, and I think that was the biggest thing about Paperclip is it was a pretty shrewd cost-benefit analysis and it was. i think uh taking aside the situational ethics and everything we're talking about um it, it probably was a better thing for america than we want to give credit to it for yeah so well at the end of the day it was a better thing for the world really i mean yeah as we sit here now you know and 10 years from now i don't know Maybe something radically changes with our technology or with our considerations or ideas about our technology, and it turns out it was all horrible. I mean, we're only talking about this from the best we can, and and this is part of the conversation, actually, which is why I wanted to bring this up as a last point on this, is as we sit here right now, we can only evaluate this based on the situation we're now in, Yeah, because we have no idea where we're going to be 10 years from now. 
and I think it, it, it points to a general lack of being able to, to, to deal in retrospection that, mm-hmm. is, that is plaguing the country right now. I mean, we are just, you know, we're, we're canceling culture, we're canceling history yep. at, at the, you know, because it's, you know, because it makes us uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible. And we're going to doom ourselves more to that than facing these things that are uncomfortable. And right. I think, you know, we really need, if there's anything I want to leave the audience with, is this idea is, you know, push back on this, on this cancel nonsense, push back on the idea that something that makes you uncomfortable makes it wrong. You know, I think because that's what happened, you know, that created the environment where scientists could thrive in a a totalitarian state uh, and created the political calculus that would allow us to bring them over here as a hedge against yet another totalitarian state. Totalitarianism thrives on the idea of the individual not thinking of not pushing back. And it's very much something that we need to worry about. Big time. Big time. If anybody were to, I'm so offended by this. <laughs> we ha- We must take down the Wikipedia pages on Operation Paperclip. We must burn the books about Operation Paperclip. We must never talk about this again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just professed ignorance. It's just, it's just willful professed ignorance. And it, and it has no place in, in our society. We, we, do, we don't need it. We don't want it. We do not need cancel anything. We need to... If anything, we need to take a good, a good, harder look at how we got to where we are so that we can understand the factors that move us so that we can, we can shape our future that much more effectively rather than just be buoys on the sea of tumultuous randomness. You know? <laughs> I like that. So um, the, the good, the, the book that I enjoyed reading, I'm on my second read and probably is the, is the, the best authority on this is uh, by Annie Jacobson. It's called Operation Paperclip, yep. the secret intelligence program to bring Nazi scientists to America. Uh, she writes well. She, uh, it's not, you know, a heavy read, marvelous references in it. So if anybody else wants to read up on this, I highly recommend her book. Big time. I will actually put a link to it below just to kind of pimp her book for her. And also because it's really quite good. And it is the authoritative research project on this topic. She writes well on national security stuff. Mm -hmm. She did a really good book on Area 51 and some other things about DARPA. and So folks out there like this kind of stuff. She's a good source. Exactly. I'll post the uh, link also below to her appearance on Rogan. Because she talked for about three hours about this stuff. And so if you're more interested in the names, dates, specifics, you know, who, what, where, and how, that kind of stuff, uh, check out that Rogan podcast as well. Jeff, thank you very much for joining me for this. Oh, I, you know, I really appreciate it. Good to talk with you again. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I really, really appreciate your points of view on this. You have helped me enormously over the years to re-see things in a more complicated and nuanced fashion. I came out of Scientology with a very simple Simon view of of how politics should work and how the world should work. And it was very, very sort of black and white. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. And this is how it should be. And and you kind of learn after a few years of, of, of watching all this stuff play out that it's way, it's not that at all. Well, I'm 61 and I still don't know it all, but I'll tell you, you know, if, if it helps to have a better lens, right? If you look at it and don't have, you know, our biases. So I appreciate that. And thank you for your kind words. I'm glad I can do that for you. Awesome, man. All right, guys. Uh, I hope you have found this conversation interesting. I, again, I'm going to reiterate, um, 
you know, no part of this was an was an effort at Nazi apologia. At you know, hey, they were a b- great bunch of guys. Oh, why aren't we so fortunate? It's it, it's it's not about that. It's about tackling a very very difficult ethical question, and I hope we did a decent job of it. And uh, let us know what you what you think in the comments as to what we had to talk about here. I always appreciate the feedback. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye bye. Thanks all. Bye bye.